HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Hey, this is Greg from Snacky Tunes. We are bringing you a very special live episode taped at Northside Festival earlier in June. One quick note, we reference a live performance by the band O at the end of the podcast. Unfortunately, the audio didn't capture... So instead, Gabby from the band sent us a few tunes to play throughout the show so you can hear the band in all their glory. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Lunabar and TNT for making this all happen. If you like the podcast, please subscribe at Snacky Tunes over at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a review if you feel up for it. Now sit back, listen, and enjoy this very special edition of Snacky Tunes Live. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Wish I could love you less like great man did. Rip your head off every time it starts to feel right. Wish I
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time and hearing us, please make sure to go to iTunes and subscribe to the Snacky Tunes podcast. We're super excited to be coming to you today from Northside Festival. Thank you to TNT and Luna Bar for making this all possible. We have a live performance and interview with the band O later in the show, but first up, Chef Pollock Patel. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You got your start as a personal chef, which is a really interesting path. How did you fall into personal chefing? Because I've gone over and cooked food for friends, but no one's ever been like, please let me give you money for your services. (laughs) Um, I didn't start as a personal chef. I like to cook. I thought I could cook. And um, I was actually working in a full-time marketing job and thought, hey, cooking's kind of fun. This would be a nice gig. My parents had a different opinion. I was like, hey, I think I want to go back to culinary school. And they were like, no, not happening. You keep working on your desk job. What was the mark? What were you marketing? Um, neuroscience, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As one does. As one does. It's an, I mean, there are a number of chefs that have very, very incredibly high pressure, super smart backgrounds, and they're like, Forget this. Yeah. We just want to cook. I just want to cook. So how did so did you get into personal chefing as a bridge gap between going back to culinary school? Yeah, so I was looking to going back to culinary school, and it was quite a financial and a time commitment at that time. So I decided, hey, what's another avenue that I can just cook and be in what I love to do? And there was an association that certified personal chefs in San Francisco. I'm like, this is great. I did a month-long training you know, did the certification and picked up a couple of clients just on my free time. And it ended up being a really successful part-time gig. So I kept doing it with the intent that once the company that I was working for got acquired, I would actually get back to culinary school full-time and pursue my dream. What are some of the key insights for being a personal chef? Because it's really different than being running your own kitchen. What are some of the things that you've had that you maybe struggled with early on that you learned was a turned around to being a good ingredient for success? I think for me personally, the one of the struggles was just working in a team environment in a corporate setting to all of a sudden being alone. Hmm. And that to me was a big transition because I, I worked in cross-functional teams. I had clients and, you know, um, co-workers around the globe to when you have a question, it's you and that's it. So that, that transition from a team environment to a solo, like you're making all the decisions, was a, a, a kind of a challenging thing for me. Um, but then inside, it works out. And, you know, you don't have to deal with all of the pressures of the team environment. And you get to do whatever you want. Came later. What were some of your standout dishes that they said, Chef, please, please make this for us? What stood out <laughs> above the rest? I think um, my fried chicken, obviously. Which was delicious. <laughs> I, the frittata bite was actually my favorite, but the fried chicken, obviously, is a crowd. I grew up in Atlanta, so if I can't make fried chicken, I think they would kick me out. Don't, um, don't tell us your entire secret, but what's, like, what's the key secret for your... Fried chicken? For your fried chicken. Uh, I fried twice. <sighs> Great answer. Perfect answer. That's correct. Yeah. So the fried chicken... And any other dishes that you have taken with you from your personal chef days that still show up on your menu? Um, lamb burgers. I know a lot of people have aversion to lamb. Um, I, Indian culture has a lot of lamb, so I think it's really interesting when I actually make something that people are really averse to. 
and they're like, oh my god, I like lamb. I didn't know I like lamb. Right. Yeah. So. I feel like I feel people the same way about rabbit too. Yeah. Where they don't know that the other white meat. <laughs> I don't think that's <laughs> how that kidding. works. <laughs> but I, but I believe. But I, I think when my brother and I were really young, my mom sat us down for dinner and like, what are you having? She said, just try it, and then I'll tell you. And we tried it. This is great. She said it was rabbit, and then there were some tears, and then we ate, ate some more. Yeah. So, but that's the only way they could, she could get us to do that's it. That's it. You were already eating it. What are you going to do? Either go hungry or, or have a second bite. Right. One of the things I, I, I'm curious about for being a personal chef versus being in a kitchen is, is the concept of ego, right? In the, in the, if you're running a 40-top restaurant, it's your – obviously, you might have to play to, on pricing and, you know, if people are coming in supply and demand, but you can put out your own food, your uh, point of view. I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, that being a personal chef is almost uh, egoless. Um, you have to be able to cook, obviously, but – they're hiring you to execute food for them in a certain way. Right. Um, I think one of the biggest um, differences between a kitchen and being a personal chef is the factor that you you really don't know what environment you're going to get into, right? So every kitchen is different, every event is different, and you just need to be able to be flexible and adaptable to that environment and execute the best that you know. And I think if you have a lot of ego and if you're very rigid into working with those environments and not be flexible with everyone that's around you, I don't think that you can work in this environment. And that's where I think personal chefing for me is great because you you really just have to kind of roll with the punches and get in there and you have a vision of what you want to do. Something breaks or something isn't what you want and then you make plan B or plan C and you're still going to put out great food. I think that is the ultimate goal. Um, just because it doesn't look like how it looked like in your conceptual plans doesn't mean that it's a great that it isn't a great dish. What is the worst cooking setup you've been handed? Worst cooking setup that I've been in. I think I did a pop up in Miami, and I, I I I'm pretty sure I almost walked out. I was like I I just I can't I can't. Was it just a one burner? Well, <laughs> no there's, cold storage. there's a lot of factors with the one burner we can do with. There's a lot of things that chefs can work around. There, and then there are certain environments like cleanliness. There's like, you know, there, there's things that I think we just don't want to deal with. Space is, I think, living in New York is something that you're used to, and you can work out sure. of a shoebox if needed. Sure. And you know, that's. I can only, I can only. You're being so polite. I can only imagine. When we're done with the interview, you can tell me off, off mic. Okay. So you went to French culinary in New York, and then you went to the south of France. Yes. What were some of the lessons that did you feel that you had to relearn anything from being a personal chef and being taught in a certain way, and then going into a very, you know, classic strict? Regimen. Did you feel that there were internal things you had to change or adjust to, or was it just a continuing of education? To be very honest, I, I grew up vegetarian, so going to South of France was a challenge in, in just my personal skill to challenge myself to learn how to cook proteins, right? Um, French training is, is a lot of rabbit, uh, <laughs> lamb, um, you know, pork, and these things aren't they were not a part of my diet growing up. So going to France was just to learn kind of how they celebrate those things and really how they celebrate local ingredients that go along with that. So, yeah, the learning for me was, oh, okay, so I now know how to make foie gras terrine and I know how to carve a duck and I know how to make, you know, 
so these, these are the things that I didn't grow up with, which is why I went to France, because it's completely opposite of how I grew up. And it was a challenge for me personally. How many times did you have to cook protein before you felt you got the hang of it? And, and what was the protein that you first mastered or well, felt comfortable sending out to someone for someone oh, to eat? Chicken. Everybody, oh, you know, chicken. It's like okay. Chicken. Besides chicken. Besides chicken. You put it chicken in the oven for 45 minutes. Yeah, like you're I know. generally. It can good. probably take yeah. itself out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, rack of lamb. Oh. Rack of lamb. That is a very big step up from chicken. Right. That's a, well, quite the it's, jump. It's, it's, it was one of these things where, you know, someone asks you, hey, I'm doing a dinner. I want you to do something fancy. And you're like, okay, well, you know, you respect French chefs a lot. And it's like, you know, to the untrained chefs, let me do rack of lamb. And then you're like, you know, Googling everything in between before you actually understand. And yeah, so the rack of lamb was probably one of those. That is a, that's a very good answer. Yeah. So you've come back. And you started to do a dinner, a couple dinner series with Dinner Lab, RIP, unfortunately. But what did you bring back from the south of France, from going back to getting your education and your personal chef that began to define the style of cooking that you present to diners? So the first Dinner Lab that I did in New York was really just to pay homage to my childhood. I love street food. I've eaten street food in so many countries. And one of my favorite memories were just going around in India when I was growing up and sneaking out and eating on the streets where I wasn't allowed to. And so... What would you eat? Um, Pani Puri. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Like, yeah. <laughs> we can um, stop there, but I want to hear some more. Yeah. But what else? So, but that, that, that's one of those things where you're just like, as a kid, standing and you're, they're just handing you and it never stops. Right. And so I thought my first dinner series to introduce myself and, and my background would be Indian street food. Kind of a little amplified, but still to the truest of how I remembered it. Um, and then I kind of took a turn on the other dinners that I did. So I did um, dinners across the country from you know New York all the way to San Francisco, to Atlanta, Miami, and D.C. I, I tried to find things that really define me. So one of the most interesting things that I learned living in south of France was France occupied India for 300 years, south of France in Pondicherry. And so that was fascinating to me. I had no idea. So when I went to Bangalore, we were driving through the coast and the, the architecture looked very familiar and French. Long behold, I look it up and I understand that they were there for 300 years along with the British. And so the second series of dinners that I did was a um, 17th century uh, French Indian dinner. So wow, the, what did you serve? Um, just a classic blend of what was available in the region because that's what French would have found. A lot of seafood, but with a lot of flavors that were very quintessential to South India. So curry leaves, mustard seeds... Um, you know, so we did like a, a soft shell fried crab, um, you know, just a, like classic French techniques with ingredients that were found in South of India. This sounds like a perfect restaurant idea. Yeah, but I got one more. Okay. I did the, the third series was to growing up in Atlanta, which was grits and bubbles or bubbles and grits. As you had fried chicken today, that's the other thing that defines me is growing up in Atlanta. I love grits, collard greens, fried chicken, macaroni and cheese. So I thought how great it is to marry champagne, which is very French and so bourgeois, to something so down and dirty as like 
French chicken mm. or fried chicken. Um, so we did uh, French champagne and fried chicken. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure that people left like very delirious yeah. and probably had like very terrible next day of just a hangover and delicious yes. memories. And you just went to Mexico City. Yes. Which I went to the first time a month ago. That's I'm going great. back in Where the month. Where are you going? Uh, just to Mexico City okay. because we didn't, I, I ran out of room in my stomach. Uh, I know but, the feeling. But we, I, and again, of your street vendor, I mean, it was also because I didn't understand. Every corner I thought, well, this is the last street vendor I'm going to find, so I ate too much, and then I realized, oh, I wasn't patient. You have to put yourself on a two-hour eating schedule. Yes. So you eat every two hours. Yes. Only a, like, like small men, not a full meal, because you don't know what's around the corner. Right. So, and you t- have to go to Oaxaca. Yes, of course, for the mezcal. And, and the cheese and everything. There's and the food. And the, the food. food in Oaxaca is world-class. And I'm going to tell you, I wish I'd spent more time there. Really? So I would highly recommend you adjust your time. I, I mean, it's not hard to convince I'm either my brother you, or I to, yeah, to change yeah. a schedule for food. Yeah. So what was the one highlight or the best discovery that you found in the, the whole trip that you feel you're going to come back and try to incorporate or just have like the best food memory of all time? Clacoyas. Um, Mm, what is that? So I was walking down the street in Coyacan, which is the old um, neighborhood in Mexico City, and there are a ton of street vendors, but one in particular was like, literally, it felt like a freeway stop, like, like cars just whizzing by, except there were people. And I'm like, what is happening here? So I make my way through the crowd, and there's this massive, like, riddle, and they're making these, like, purple football-shaped... Um, tortilla-looking things, right? And I'm like, what is that? So luckily for me, I was with a friend that works for NPR. So I'm like, I have a translator slash, you know, cultural. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, That's, those are clacoyas, which is purple corn. And they make them into a, a, like a little pita bread type of thing. And they hollow it out. And you can get um, cactus, meat, refried beans. But the best part is the seven buckets of salsa that accompany it that you can just, like, eat your heart's diet. And, and that's real spice. For a dollar. For a dollar. For a dollar. A dollar. You're going to have to draw a map for me where this is. I am I'm going to just take... I'm going to show you pictures, and you're going to find that street corner, and you're going to go have Klakoya at that stand. It best, blew my mind. Best blew food recommendation mind. we've ever had on the show. Blew my mind. Well, Chef, I want to thank you for your time. Um, where can people find you? Where can they read your blog, which is great? Where can they um, get you? Chef Pollock, and my website's chefpollockpatel.com. I write about my travels, and I post everything on Instagram and Facebook, etc. Oh, yeah, what's your Instagram game like? Chef Pollock. Chef Pollock. It's great. Well, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be back with an interview with O, and followed by a live full performance later on the show. Keep eating. We'll be right back.
We have Gabby Smith of O, who just played a really great set. Thank you. We're coming to you live from Kinfolk, part of Northside Festival. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're a proper born and raised New Yorker. That is true. Which is a very rare breed. Thank you. Well, I mean, not many people that you meet. A lot of people came from somewhere. Like, I came from Philly, Mm -hmm. which is where you went to school Mm -hmm. at. um, And Philly was amazing. You were there 2008? Yeah. Pretty good time to be in Philadelphia. Yeah, it was a very, uh, I feel like, advanced musical moment in Philadelphia where everybody was making really freaky music and it was really inspiring and cool. Where would you, where would you play or where would you go see music when you were there? Um, I played a lot at this place uh, called the Danger Danger Gallery, uh, which was in West Philly and it is not there anymore. Uh, I mean, none of the places are there anymore. Well, Most it, of the places. Like, I yeah. grew up going to 4040 Club Rotunda, which don't... You're just I looking at me blankly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, no. That's how far removed they are. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you, were play, you played at Danger Danger Gallery. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was kind of mostly the spot that... Who were some of the other bands that you had played with? Um, well, I was in a band called Power Animal... Uh, which is still a band. I'm just not in it anymore. Uh, Am- amicable? Different oh, yeah, yeah. We're, like, we're like BFF. It's totally cool. Um, and there was this band at the time called Hermit Thrushes that was like really, really special to me. Uh, and this band called Snowcaps. A lot of really, really sick bands at the time. 
I mean, like, I, to list them all would be impossible. We, we've got 10 hours. <laughs> it's, a, it's a podcast. We have all, right, all here the time. we go. Here we go. Alphabetical, <laughs> but starting with Z and going that cool. way. But what's uh, amazing is that a lot of your current collaborators you met in Philly back at that time. Um, no. Well, no? I was, it was at that time, but I met them here. Oh. Yeah. They all actually also grew up in New York. So a lot of New Yorker. It's so, I mean, I was a Philadelphia kid who got out, went to New York. You're a New Yorker who went to Philly for yeah. a couple of years and then came back. Yeah. What did you, or what were some of the differences you can paint between the Philadelphia music scene and the New York, Brooklyn DIY scene? Um, well, I had no idea what was going on in the New York scene at all. It, to me, it seemed like it was all like the Strokes and uh, bands that sounded like the Strokes. And I was just like that sucks. I don't, I don't sound like that. So bye. But now I think it's sick. I wish I had been part of it. Um, but in Philly, it was like, everybody was really mad at guitar. Um, they were all trying to either like deconstruct what a guitar should sound like or make a band that had no guitars at all. And I thought that was like really hot and cool. Who was a good example or one or two examples of bands that were able to fully deconstruct the guitar deconstruct was definitely the band hermit thrushes they like they just made this like really scary um just really like really weird music yeah so you formed the artist collective the epoch what year did you form that in and and what was the scenario among you and your artist friends that were going on that led you to lead to creating that um it was kind of just I don't know. The epoch is kind of a weird subject. We didn't really have any... It wasn't like, we're going to form this thing. It was just like, we don't fit in anywhere, and we want a place to show each other our music and make it feel, like, official, and, you know. So we tried... We just made our own sort of inward-facing collective, but it doesn't work, so no... uh, no, Why doesn't it work? I don't know. People just get bummed out. They're like, am I in it? Am I not in it? Like, what does it mean to be in it? It's just like, it does, it's not, it doesn't matter. It's not worth it. Right. I mean, but I mean, the barriers were of entry, it seems like just make something and then we'll tell people that you made something. Yeah, exactly. And people are like, but do I get a card? Do I get a, a button? Right. Like it was definitely cool. Cause we felt like we had something to really like stand by, but then when we thought about it later, we were like, oh, we weren't really standing by anything. And that's cool, too. Like, we're just friends. Sick. You know what I mean? You also did a really cool project where you wrote a song a day, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good creative push where by the time I go to bed, I'll have done mm-hmm. a song. And you worked with some really amazing bands mm-hmm. as well doing it. Um, one of my favorites being Japanese Breakfast. Oh, yeah. I love that record so much. Yeah. It's... I. It's such a, and now that it's summer, I feel like it's a good summer, yeah. like romance record. Totally. And some of those songs that are on Psychopomp were written during that Song of Day project. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that makes this even better. Yeah. So talk about the process or what did you define as a completed song? What, did it have to be recorded? Did it have to be written? Or what, how would, what would your days be like? Um, at that time, I mean, it's kind of like... At the time, I think I was really blocked up creatively, and I just needed to let myself loose and try to uh, allow anything to be a song that I felt was finished. So that was kind of the only criteria was like, 
All right, I've said what I need to say. It sounds audible, <laughs> and here it is. Was yeah. it just, and we'll get to this in a point about your lyrics, but did, was it just the lyrics had to be complete or there had to be some melody behind it? or It had to be considered a song. So whatever that means, create, you know, it'll just if you hear it and you're like, oh, that's a song, like, that's, that's my criteria for... And for you and the other bands that did it, would it be, you know, before you went to bed, you would send each other your songs? Or, how did, or was it just for um, you and they supported you? Or was everyone writing in that period? We had a, a Tumblr where we would post. Each person had access to the Tumblr and we would just post the song. And then I think each of us would, like, reblog it on our own Tumblrs. There was, like, a May 5 to 12 songs.tumblr.com was what it was. I'm sure it's still there. I yeah. would occur. Say it again. May five. May five to twelve. Are the songs. five spelled out? Or no, they, just okay. the numbers. Yeah, you and have to do a little googling. Probably. That's fine. <laughs> we can get there. We're we're a modern show. When did you feel from the beginning of the of the song a day process till how long was it till you felt that you were able to unstick your writer's block or felt okay this this has served its purpose and now I'm going to go and just write my next record. Um, I think that that exercise showed me that for me, um, songwriting is this muscle that I can just engage whenever I need to. Um, like for example, last week I was upstate by myself and I wrote two songs a day and thought, I was just like, I wonder if I can write two songs a day. What would that be like? And it's, it was really easy. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Did you, did you find that the first song or the second song was either of them stronger or there was no pattern to which... It, it depended on the day. Um, some days I'd wake up and just be like, no, I don't want to do this at all. I just want to, like, go lay on the couch. And then that song would be worse. Uh, and then after <laughs> I would listen to it and be like, okay, I did it, then I would be able to make a second song that's usually stronger or vice versa. Oh, so you would... Or if you got up and you were inspired, you'd be like, oh, that's easy. And the, the yeah. second song would be... Would be like, Phoned you know, in. a little bit more experimental or whatever. <laughs> what, what I really love about your music is the lyrics. Um, it, it's They're really beautiful. Some of them I can't quite figure out. Some of them I can understand. But you've talked about in the past about how your lyrics come first, they're mixed mm-hmm. first, and everything's built around it. Where did you find that process? A lot of people who are solo artists will some say it's the music first, and then I figure it out. But how did you land on lyrics being the center of this project? Um... Most of my writing takes place when I'm in private, and most of the times that I'm in private are times when I'm in transit. Um, And I think that you can't... I mean, you you can do whatever you want on the subway, but I don't feel comfortable being, like taking out my guitar and trying to figure out some... You would, you would be the defi- definition of that person? Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Exactly. That's so, like going and uh, writing a novel in a coffee shop. Exactly. It's just like, uh, like, you're that guy, like, cool. <laughs> so I just take my phone or my notebook or whatever is my thing of the, of the moment and um, just try as hard as I can to organize my thoughts when I'm alone and Usually it just comes out. I think of it in a more sing-songy way, so it just comes out in a way that works lyrically. But often I have to like add and cut lyrics uh, in the actual song. Is there a particular train line that's really good for writing songs? Um, well, I mean, the Bolt Bus to Philadelphia is like the best writing space of all time. Why I've, is that? It's just so like 
you no matter where you're sitting, you can just like tuck away in a corner and and just like scribble and feel like you're making a lot of progress because you're like moving forward and you know where you're going and you're above ground and you can like I I love the thesaurus. I use it a lot. Uh, so you, I still have access to my thesaurus uh, on the Bolt bus. Is there a song that you can tell us that you wrote on the Bolt bus that made it onto one of your records? Um, I definitely wrote Broken Necks on the Bolt bus. <laughs> we'll have to just like imagine like the Schuylkill River and the yeah, boathouses exactly. rushing by on mm-hmm. that. Uh, so you are going to play a couple of festivals this summer. Yeah, yeah. We're playing... Um, the Hopscotch Festival in North Carolina, and then the Simple Things Festival. Well, this is it, that's in October, but we're playing the Simple Things Festival in uh, Br- Bristol. Amazing! Yeah. Are you excited? Yeah, it's ha- gonna be cool. Have you been to Bristol? No. Okay. Yeah. So, if any of you listeners have any Bristol food tips, please send to us. Yeah, please help us, or yeah. like where we should sleep would be cool too. <laughs> I'm sure we. I'm sure people can figure that out. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, well, we want to make sure that we have time because we're gonna play the entire concert you just performed okay. for us. So, anything um, people should have in the mindset before they listen to you rip for 40 minutes? Uh, it's really good, and uh, this is a particularly good show that we just played for you in a minute. Oh, so we captured a good moment in time. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, where can people find you? Help you get a place to sleep in Bristol. Um, get bolt butts tips. Yeah, we're, we're on Facebook and uh, Bandcamp. Love Bandcamp. Yeah. They're so good. It's a good one. They're really good. Well, I want to thank Chef Patel for being on the show. I want to thank Northside, Luna, and TNT for having us. We're going to be right back with a full concert from O. Thanks for listening. We're Snacky Tunes. We'll be back next week with another live episode. Bye. Oh, how my heart can fly when your smile has good intentions. Singing makes you shy when it's in front of me and my friends. The world to me.
listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>